Dr. Alpern, the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every every Monday, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Uh, one thing he does not do every Monday is to help me with uh, the introduction, but for reasons that the listener uh, will soon about, I said, for reasons the listener, about which the listener will soon learn, he's helping me right now. Dave Cameron, you're there? So, soon is not a good term. We just recorded a 50-minute podcast. No, so it's ridiculous. You're lying. S- s- this will not be soon. You're Listen, lying. Listeners, buckle in. This is going to take a while. What do we discuss? We discuss, uh, a lot of what we discuss here are, uh, are prospects that have been promoted, uh, the whys and hows and wherefores, yeah? Yeah, and I insulted a lot of players with a lot of hype. You really focused on the AL Central as well. I tore them all down. Well, we do talk about uh, evaluating defense and some of the d- difficulties, and maybe some of the the sort of um, the misconceptions about about evaluating defense. Yeah, or, or and the the challenges therein, especially at the minor league level. And then, uh, and I suppose also we look at uh, some contending teams and attempt to. Uh, to essay, to, to examine how contending they really are. Right. In yeah. which case, I, I burst bubbles of teams and players alike. Right. You are like a, uh, you're like, you're like a, like a five-year-old near a soapy <laughs> bathtub in that you, you regard it as your job to burst bubbles. Yeah. I think this, this podcast better be, uh, titled Dave Cameron Bursts All Bubbles. No, okay, we can do that, although I have a vaguely central name. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, I think you mean this edition of the program. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's what I meant. That's exactly what the you program. Mean. Well, we will get to it. Uh, we will get to it. Uh, post haste. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron helping me with the program. I am Carson Sestouli, and what you're about to listen to is this edition of Fangraphs Audio. button but i guess it was on uh it starts that it starts that way it's a default mechanism Dave that's that's silly why would it be defaulted to be muted uh i bet there's a reason not a good one well dave this is a microphone that uh, people use while editing so maybe they figure if you're going to air on one side or the other it's not to be talking as opposed to to be talking have you ever yeah, thought that you definitely want the default of a recording the device to be not recording like you really, I mean, it's good. good I think form that you're to have first of all that, where they have one function to not do that function. The function is at your fingertips, Dave Cameron. Aren't you? You're not going to defer to people who've created a fine product to maybe no. that they have a theory about this. No. <laughs> I think if you're going to ship a microphone, yeah, it should be defaulting to recording uh, with the setting of muting if someone wants it to. I like to see. This is a function that's been added because the, the previous exact microphone I had, the, the first version I had, uh, got busted, and I bought a second one, and now and, I, and it defaults to mute, but it right. did not do that before. So this is something they so have expressly added. They broke it. No, they. I'm gonna say they probably didn't break it, Dave Cameron. I, I think you're giving them too much credit. I think you. You know what you're doing right now. You're no worse than the readers who who probably annoy you sometimes when the the article goes out or you tweet out. Uh, Red Sox, uh, you know, they, this is the Red Sox. And then without reading your article, this is something that happens. Uh, people reply like, you're wrong. You're an imbecile. Look at your dumb face. 
Uh, yeah, they they do do that. I but I I'm okay with doing the same thing. Yeah, I, guess I bet you, you are. like uh, this microphone company probably run by Ruben Amaro. You think so? Yeah, I right. think this is what he does in his spare time when he's not, you know, uh, destroying the Phillies. Well, no, unlike uh, unlike Ruben Amaro, he's created here a or unlike typical Ruben Amaro, he's created a a uh, a low cost product relative. Um, this is something that you don't have to pay a lot for relative to what uh, it, the market typically offers. So uh, would that be so an exception? So maybe Ruben Amaro is not involved. Because mm. this is what we have here, Dave Kim. This is great. But uh, to conversation, these are USB microphones that have um, a lot of the features of a, of, a, of a sort of real microphone. Okay, so we, t- so we need like a baseball example of something that was good and then someone broke it. So maybe this is like, uh, I don't know, Dusty Baker took Kerry Wood and then ran him into the ground. That could be something like that. Could you think yeah. of any guys? Here's some guys, uh, uh, Kyle and McDaniel will mention guys who tinker excessively with their swings or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Trevor Bauer comes to mind. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's having sort of a strange season. I think he's getting some credit, right, because he's preventing runs, which is um, which is not something that the Indians, other uh, Cleveland pitchers are able to do. Uh, despite the fact that they should be, whereas I think he must be one of the he must be the only starter on that team who's currently posting a, a better ERA than he is XFIP or something like that. Yeah, I think he's quite a bit below his peripherals in terms of uh, above below, which his ERA is lower than mm-hmm. his peripherals yeah. uh, by uh, a good margin. Uh, by a I, full, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah full I, I would say don't expect that to continue. Trevor Bauer, I think. Is popular among uh, sabermetric nerds because he's into biomechanics and he's active on Twitter. He's also not very good. Ah, uh, no, he's not good. You know, well, you and I have different definitions. Of he, he's better he's than ba- most people. He, he's bad. He's he's striking out a batter per a batter per inning. He's striking yeah, out. He, he, right, he gets strikeouts at the yeah. expense of walks and fly balls. Uh, so he does one of the three things you need to do to succeed as a pitcher. Yes, which makes him bad. It's the most important thing. Well, I guess preventing home runs, depending on the scale, uh, is good. But if but if you were if you're going to isolate, especially in a small sample, you say what is the what's the skill I can isolate about this guy, and it's his ability to miss bats. Then that's the best thing you can do. Yes, as long as it doesn't cost you uh, your command and your ability to keep <laughs> the ball in the yard. Which you know, uh, I'll just say best of luck to Trevor Bauer. Uh, I think he's highly overrated because of his personality and his uh, uniqueness, and not his pitching ability. Okay, I know that. I know that you. You. I know that Dave Cameron. I know that this is Dave Cameron's opinion. You've mentioned it before. I don't know on air, but uh, you've said that I will say that I take a more uh, a, a more temperate view of the matter. I think that he is that that he certainly is uh, of some interest to um to the people because he's uh, he tends to be. He is excited about pitching mechanics, et cetera. Right. And, you know, I think the fact that he has this weird throwing routine and he, you know, got in a spat with the Diamondbacks and a lot of analytical fans were anti-Diamondbacks and especially that regime. Yeah. So it was very easy for them to take sides and, and take his, his side and say, oh, man, this is a, you know, uh, a, a guy who's being persecuted for having different ideas. Well, you know, maybe he's being persecuted for not being very good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Arizona could probably use him though. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, right. They, they probably could use him more than uh, whatever. They flipped him for Didi Gregorius, who then they flipped for Robbie Ray. So, right, that the net loss, because Robbie Ray is not very good either. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, I don't think this is going to be a disastrous trade that comes back to, to hurt them. But, you know, by the time Trevor Bauer becomes a decent pitcher, he's going to be really expensive. So Yeah. You know, uh, our I believe it was Owen Watson uh, wrote for Fangraphs recently a post about Cleveland's starting rotation. And it is uh, it is a formidable one that rotation in terms of strikeouts, especially yeah. in terms of strikeouts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, are they preventing runs uh, no. at a league average? Uh, I mean, at, at the at a, at a rate that you would regard as um, particularly excellent? No, it's, uh, it's certainly not compared to their their fielding independent numbers. But they are they strike out a lot of batters. Yeah, they do one thing very well. And they are poor at most other things. Although Corey Kluber throws a lot of strikes. But the rest of the rotation, not enough. Really? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Danny Salazar and Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Bauer and whoever their fifth starter is, Sean Markham or something. Uh, these are not guys. I mean, Markham is uh, very different than the rest. Uh, but this, this, as a whole, this is not a group that you look at and be like, wow, these guys have really good command. Well, listen, if I if I quote some numbers to the contrary, how will you react to that? I'll probably call them silly. <laughs> Carlos Carrasco's walk rate currently. Yeah, but right, walk, but, walk rate and command are not the same thing. Right? No, they're like not. The, they're not well, what, well, I will uh, I will acquiesce to the fact that they don't walk a lot of batters except for Trevor Bauer, but they throw bad pitches. So this is – well, we've discussed this before. Jeff Sullivan has written – he wrote a couple times about it recently, right? Is uh, attempting attempting to isolate command yep. is difficult. Yep. Um and you know, uh, walk. I think that there's. If we're going to make a a Venn diagram, then there's there must be some there's some overlap between command and control, right? Or command and command and walk rate. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. So there there are some pitchers who have very good command, and uh, we can we can also see that they have very low walk rates. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every pitcher with a low walk rate has good command. Having, having good command will lead to a good, low walk rate in most cases. Probably. Having a low uh, walk rate is not the cause of good command. Right. And there are certain cases, like I think probably Tom Glavin, right, especially uh, latter, latter days, the latter days of Tom Glavin's career, would be an example of a pitcher whose walk rate might have actually been higher because his command was good. Because he would he was throwing to like a – essentially like a, uh, like a spot on the outside corner – Low on the outside corner, that was like a, the width of a, of a single ball. He was just throwing there all the time. Yeah. Right? And it, it was sometimes it was a strike, sometimes it wasn't. But he was taking the walks because he knew that he was going to induce weak contact by by continually hitting that spot. Yeah. Tom good. Glavin had good command. He had good. Are we we can say that we can look back on it. I uh, think that's the statement we can agree on. <laughs> Better it, command than Trevor Bauer. It's taking us it's taking us nine minutes to agree on one thing. Yeah, we'll try not to agree on any more. All right. Well, here's something that you're forced to agree on, agree upon. I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, to ask you about this. The last two weeks, last week even, has seen an uncommonly large, uh, an uncommonly large number of uh, top prospects getting promoted uh, to the majors, and. So here's question number one, and probably the most obvious thing: is this is this merely a product of teams that have been avoiding uh, promoting these players earlier on, so that uh, they would not have to suffer either? Let's see, what were the things they would be suffering? It would be an extra year of 
they would be in one case they would be sacrificing an extra year of uh, team control. Yeah. There's that, and then there's some, and then there's Super Two qualification. Right. So the Super Two deadline passed most likely some point, you know, a week or two ago. Uh, I think I wrote a piece last week about how Steven Matz uh, probably wasn't being held down in the minors because of the Super Two deadline, as uh, as had been speculated, because the Super Two deadline was probably a couple weeks ago. Um, so now that we're in the clear of it, I think teams that were uh, not even thinking about considering calling up their prospects before the Super 2 deadline, uh, kind of reevaluated and said, okay, there's basically no cost to us at this point to bringing up a prospect like Byron Buxton or Francisco Lindor. Uh, you know, we're basically going to suffer no consequences for doing this. We're theoretically in contention. They're more talented than the guys we have. Let's give it a try and see what it works. I don't think any of these teams are committed to where, you know, there's, you know, if Buxton or Lindor come up and go 0 for 20, they might go right back to the minor leagues. <laughs> I don't think either of these teams have said, you know, these guys are up for good. But at this point, you know, it's kind of a no-risk gamble. If it works, great. You've promoted a talented prospect and excited your fan base and, you know, maybe improved your team for the stretch run. And if it doesn't work, well, you know, what you had was pretty bad anyway. Right. Well, yeah, it was bad anyway, and it also takes... And also, there must be some. Is there a ceiling? Do you think on the degree to which a, a young player can develop in the minor leagues? At some point, he has to face. I mean, in theory, x, x percent of all the pitchers. Uh, I'm talking about batters specifically. Like a certain percentage of all the pitchers in the major leagues are better than any of the pitchers you could find in the minors, right? Right. I mean, what percentage do you think that is? Ninety. I mean, <coughs> pretty high. Yeah. Otherwise, they would be. Yeah, they would be in the minor league. I think the overlap between major league and minor league pitchers is like you know the middle relief crew and you know some teams fifth starters. Right. So when you go when as a prospect when you when you um, are promoted from AAA to major league, you're essentially you're seeing a version of things you've seen previously, but it's it's but literally you this it's all better though or ninety percent it's ninety percent of it is decidedly better than the best thing you saw at the previous level. Yes. And so, so my question is there must be some, there must be a certain amount of development that has to occur at the major league level. Right. I don't think there's any question that there's uh, a ceiling at which, you know, you say, okay, I have learned all I can learn from facing guys who throw 88 to 92 with some sink and bad command and, uh, you know, maybe an occasional guy running up to 95 who's just throwing it straight as an arrow. Otherwise he'd be in the big leagues. Um, but I think that, kind of point of diminishing returns or diminished returns is probably when you're 24 or 25 or 26 and have a few thousand at-bats against these guys. I don't think that's necessarily a a case we can make an argument for Byron Buxton, especially because he's missed so much time in the last couple of years, or Francisco Lindor is 21. Mm -hmm. Uh, These guys, I think, probably could use more development and would continue to improve while uh, kind of, you know, either holding their own or even doing a, a, all right against uh, inferior pitching because you do, I think, uh, can, can you can learn, continue to learn while succeeding. You don't necessarily have to learn just by failure. I think, like, I know there are some teams who think that you have to push a guy until he fails so that he learns how to fail and that will never be a good player until he doesn't fail. Mike Trout never failed. <laughs> you know, like, I think there's a, a lot of examples of guys who never really failed in their career and have turned out just fine. Uh, not every player is going to be Mike Trout, obviously, but I don't I don't buy into the idea that failure is required for learning. And so I think you can continue to to learn and improve while succeeding in the minor leagues. Um, 
there probably is some level of, uh, you know, improvement that you can't make while facing minor league pitching, but I think for guys who are 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, it's probably not a big consideration. Now, in the case of, so who's the, the most recent of the, the debutants? Well, Buxton and Lindor, uh, of course, were probably the same day. Uh, Lindor plays for a team, uh, now in, in Cleveland. Well, let, wait. Let, let's we'll get to that question in a second. I want to still focus on is there is, is this is this an uncommonly large number of players to have been of top prospects to have debuted uh, within like a two month stretch? You know, because we've seen Bryant, Russell, Rodon, um, Lindor. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Oh, uh, I mean Lance Lance McCullers <coughs> and Vince Vals- uh, Velasquez both. Some guy named jo- Joey Gallo in Texas. Joey Gallo, Carlos Correa. This seems like an uncommonly large percentage of like the top t- top twenty prospects. Is it? And if it's if it is, is it is that just a product of of chance? Do you think? No, I think this does feel like you know a larger percentage of guys getting called up than normal. Uh, I wonder if you know instead of it being specifically about the players if it's more about the rankers like uh it feels to me and i haven't done an analysis of this to back this up this is all you know speculation off the top of my head Mm -hmm. it feels like the risk reward balance of prospect ranking in the past was skewed way too heavily towards tools and upside and not enough towards floor and proximity to the majors and i think uh maybe after having a lot of uh, high risk, high reward guys go poorly. Uh, maybe prospect rankers are adjusting and saying, you know what? The guys who are closer to the majors are better prospects than guys who are far away, even if that guy who's far away, uh, might have a, you know, a slightly higher, uh, overall level. So, you know, if we say, um, you know, these top 20 prospects, uh, 14 of them are in the majors or whatever the number is, maybe that's because the people who are ranking the top 20 prospects were picking guys who were in double A and triple A versus guys in A ball. Right. And, and there, right. And I mean, I guess there is, there's also, there is value, right, in having succeeded at a higher level. Right. I, yeah. I think our confidence in a prospect's, uh, quality should be influenced pretty heavily by how well he's done in higher levels of the minor leagues. It's fine to get excited about a guy crushing the ball in A ball, but you should necessarily have less confidence about that than you should someone who succeeded earlier. I mean, I, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I know I've had a couple conversations with some Baseball America guys, and and they had a talk with a scout who saw Byron Buxton in A-ball uh, when Mike Trout was the best player in baseball at the same time, and his, that scout said he would take Buxton over Mike Trout, to which my response is that scout should be fired. Like I don't I don't care how much you like Byron Buxton, and like that's an that's a an indefensible opinion. Uh, you can like Buxton's tools all you want, but if you're taking the performance of a 19-year-old in A-ball over the best player in baseball in major leagues, you're you're weighting these things incorrectly. Well, it, well, and not just the best player in the major leagues, the best player who himself was only, yeah. at that time, probably 21. 21, right. Yeah, yeah the, the best 21-year-old we've ever seen in the history of baseball right. uh, versus a 19-year-old having a good year in the Midwest League. Like, uh, I think these are the kinds of things that... You know, maybe we're more common a few years ago where people got really excited about 19-year-olds in A-ball, and now we're like, well, uh, maybe the, maybe they're not as uh, good of prospects as we used to think they are, and maybe the guys in AA and AAA who are on the doorsteps to the major leagues are more valuable. Right, and that's uh, that happens at the amateur ranks, too. I know that uh, from talking with Kylie, I think that uh, there was a player perhaps selected by, I'm going to say perhaps selected by the Cubs, not knowing, I'm wrong, uh, selected by the Marlins, Tyler Kolek. 
Right. Tyler Kolek was uh, uh, selected second overall last year. Because he throws 100. He throws, yeah, he throws quite hard. Uh, but he didn't. He did not necessarily have a lot of baseball experience, really. I don't yeah. think he had played against much in the way of competition. So, so obviously, there's exciting raw tools for pitcher there. And it is true that uh, throwing harder, a all things being equal, throwing harder is better than than not. I mean, I think we can agree on that, right? Yeah, that's uh, the second thing we've agreed upon. Yeah. So, so, but. Uh, but if you if you don't necessarily have the other skills that are that are necessary, pitcher, there's still going to be risk there. And you know he's still pitching just a Class A ball this year. And uh, you know I mean Coldeck uh, is sure he's, he appears to be doing fine, but he's not he's not posting incredibly great numbers. So you know he's a 19 year old who's not who's not dominating Class A at the moment. Right. And uh, I think that's maybe an example of a, a guy who previously would have been ranked higher on prospect list because he was the number two overall pick and he throws 100 miles an hour and the upside is obvious. Uh, but you know, is probably a lesser prospect than, uh, you know, some some guy who's already gotten to AAA and might only have the ceiling of an above-average player. Right. He, uh, yeah, he was, um, he was fit. Uh, he only is only 52 on um, on uh, Baseball America's list, and uh, and I'm trying to find out where he might have been on uh, Kyla McDaniel's list. So, uh, um, but um, but then in the other in the other cases. Um, you could have someone like I don't know if you had the opportunity. He's oh, he's 74th on Kylie's list, uh, and of course Kylie probably Ky- Kylie pr- probably among the sort of people who's composing this list is uh, is probably a little bit more uh, aware of the um, of the height of the floor relative to the ceiling. Yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure if you uh, watched any of the College World Series this weekend, but the pretty good matchup on Sunday night. Uh, between Cal State Fullerton and Vanderbilt, featuring two uh, featuring two draftees. One of them was Carson Fulmer, uh, who was taken, of course, within the first top ten picks, and the other one was uh, Thomas Eshelman, who was an interesting player uh, because he, I think he had like a hundred nineteen to seven strikeout to walk ratio this year. That's okay. <laughs> um, and you know when you when you watch a pitch, even you now if you want to say how quickly are you able to identify command. Uh, I'm sure that the fact that I already knew his strikeout and walk numbers influenced uh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. I've actually done him an injustice. It was 131 to seven. Yeah, yeah, that's even better. Yeah, in the in the Big West, which uh, has you know which produces major leaguers, um, you already know the numbers, so it affects it. But you could see uh, you could see command, and that's the sort of pitcher who. Uh, I think Kylie has said it. Uh, the, the broadcasters during that same college game said that's someone who could be effective in the major leagues. Um, well, who knows how effective, but could get a, could be getting outs uh, sooner than probably anyone else in his in his draft class. Yeah, I mean this is the, the classic close to the majors, lower ceiling pitcher, right? Is the guy who just pounds strikes with 89 mile an hour fastballs, which I'm guessing Eshelman doesn't have big velocity, or he would have gone in the top 15 picks. Yeah, he's like 80, 89 to 91 like yeah, that. Right. So, yeah, he's your classic strike-throwing, pitch-to-contact guy. And if he gets ground balls and misses enough bats, then maybe he'll turn into, you know, uh, Kyle Hendricks or something. Right. And he's got he, uh, he's got a pretty decent change, too. And we've seen that sort of pitcher uh, overwhelmed right. as well. Yeah. Um, all right. So so it's possible, that, uh, it's possible that it's saying less about the players themselves and more about the people uh, who are commenting upon them. Uh, in terms of the effects on the specific teams, Cleveland – has had what Cleveland has had bad luck. Are we able to use that word? Have they had uh, bad luck? 
I don't know. Do, in what way? The fact that they live Should in Should they Cleveland? have won more games than they have already? Uh, I don't think that's true. Let's, okay. let's look at base runs. Okay. <laughs> you, while you look at base runs, I'll, I'll formulate the rest of the question. Okay. Um, good. They are a team, even, whether they've had bad luck or not, the projections suggest that they ought to be in uh, something like the thick of it um, by the end of the year. Um, so base run says they uh, should be 32 and 30. They're actually 29 and 33. So slightly underperforming, but you know, not the Oakland A's. Not crazy, right? Who are, who are way behind? Uh, and and the the projections for the team are are, are relatively optimistic, such that uh, uh, they the uh, the uh, the Indians, even with their current record, are expected to um, finish alongside. Uh, Kansas City and Detroit at the top of the division. It's going to be rather close between those three teams is the prediction. Uh, I guess that's probably the projection I'm looking at now are with uh, uh, Francisco Lindor instead of uh, Jose Ramirez. Um, is this is that uh, – I don't know what other factors it might be that you, that you personally could account for, but do you think that the – what do you feel about the, the promotion of Lindor in this particular type of situation and, and how much it might help that team? So I, I, um, I'm of the opinion that Francisco Lindor might be the most overrated prospect in baseball, mm-hmm. or he's in, he's in the discussion, at least. Like, I, I think the, uh, idea that Francisco Lindor is ready to really help the Indians down the stretch is a little bit silly. His minor league numbers actually have never really been all that good. They weren't that good in AAA. Uh, he's supposed to be a really good defender, but, uh, I am somewhat skeptical of the, uh, ability of of people to project defensive performance based on you know watching a few minor league games mm-hmm. uh, or ba- evaluating based on just a you know player's physical skills. I think there's uh, a chance that Lindor could be a really good defensive shortstop, or maybe not. I think you know some of these guys who come up with really good defensive reputations ends up you know maybe maybe not being as good as people think. Um, so I, I would expect Lindor to not hit very much and and maybe play good defense. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, in which case I don't think he'll be all that different than Jose Ramirez. But, you know, giving him a chance doesn't necessarily hurt, hurt the Indians at all. He could prove me, uh, wrong and, and, you know, come out and hit really well and, and play good defense and help the Indians. And if it doesn't work, well, at least they know, you know, a month and a half in advance of the trade deadline, they give him, a, you know, four, four weeks to play. And if he plays well, then they don't have to play to trade for a shortstop. And if he plays poorly, then they do have to trade for a shortstop. So, um, I don't think there's any harm in trying it, but I don't expect Lindor to have a significant positive impact on the Indians this year. With regard to, to the evaluation of defense, is it, it now, it, does the, does the fact that Johnny Peralta is by all accounts or certainly by the metrics, a decidedly a plus defender is that something that that is just the, the fact that that exists is that what makes you suspicious about being able to evaluate defense based on a couple looks i mean that's not the only thing mm-hmm. but i think uh i would say especially when it comes to guys who are kind of considered top prospects were drafted highly uh, there's kind of an assumption of their athleticism that I think can take hold but doesn't necessarily uh, require much in the way of evidence in order to be perpetuate, perpetuated, uh, where people are like, wow, Francisco Lindor was drafted as a very good defensive shortstop, and we don't really have any evidence to the contrary, so we just assume that it's true, right? Like there's never really been anything to disprove kind of what was the prior when he was drafted, as this guy's going to be a good defender uh, at the position. And then you have, you know, uh, some highlight-type plays, and people say, man, I, I saw that Lindor guy who was supposed to be a pretty good shortstop, and I saw him make this great play, and confirmation bias kicks in, and you basically just uh, take the original uh, evaluation coming out of high school, and it gets – 
uh, carried on through the minor leagues, and it doesn't really get disputed until we get to the big leagues. And then you actually start accumulating some data, which I know people are skeptical of defensive data, but uh, it's not totally useless. And after a couple of years, I think we have a, a decent idea of at least the range of where the guy is. And if you know if Lindor is a spectacular defensive shortstop, it will show up in the data uh, eventually. And so I think you know, like a guy like Andrelton Simmons, uh, you know, was drafted as a pitcher. Um, wasn't necessarily supposed to be the greatest defensive shortstop of all time, and he didn't really get a lot of recognition for being that until he got to the big leagues and started putting up crazy defensive numbers. I think the same is true of Juan Lagares and uh, Franklin Gutierrez and some of the guys who've really graded out as like the best defenders uh, in you know major league in the major leagues in the recent years weren't necessarily graded out as 80 defenders in the minor leagues. I think maybe the best example of this is Nolan Arenado, who is in the minor leagues was considered a fringe third baseman and would probably have to move to another position. And there were a lot of scouting reports that said this was a guy who just wasn't very good defensively. And now he's basically a Gold Glover who might be the best third baseman in the National League. And everybody agrees he's just gotten tremendously better. It's not that he uh, the evaluation was completely incorrect, but um, I think those kinds of things make me somewhat hesitant to just rely on, you know, four-year-old scouting reports and say that we know for sure with real certainty that Lindor is going to be a very good defensive shortstop. He might be. I just wouldn't say that with certainty yet. Do you, uh, with regard to Arenado, it, now, there are not necessarily, I mean, unless you live in Colorado perhaps, there are not a lot of reasons why a neutral supporter would um, go out of his or her way to watch a lot of Rockies games over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, if, so I don't know how much you've seen of him. I haven't seen a lot of him. I've seen highlight type plays. That's what I've seen, and yeah. I've I've certainly seen his his numbers, uh, which are good. Uh, is there anything do you think about his profile physically that might have made such an evaluation that might have, uh, as you say, perpetuated such an evaluation um, before before any data was available regarding his defense? Not really. I mean, I think you can, you know, he looks like a pretty decent athlete. He's, you know, uh, in shape. He's not Pablo Sandoval. You know, right? Right. This is one of those guys where you look at and be like, there's no way this guy is good defensively. Uh, and then Sandoval actually turned out to be a pretty good defensive third baseman for a while. Uh, which is maybe another one of these marks of like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. But I think with Arenado, you look at him, he looks like a guy who, uh, at least as a major leaguer, I didn't see him at all as a minor leaguer. As a major leaguer, he looks, you know, very good at third base. He looks like a guy who should be very good at third base. Um, I don't necessarily, since I didn't see what the scouts saw when they were talking about moving him off the position, mm-hmm. I can't necessarily comment on what they saw. But I, you know, at the same time, I saw Robinson Cano uh, a decent amount when he was an A-ball, and he was a disaster at second base, and now he's actually a pretty good defensive second baseman. So I know that this this can happen. That's, I'm not trying to disparage the evaluation of Arenado at the time, just simply talking about how defensive performance can change pretty dramatically. Um, and I think like with a guy like Cano, this footwork improved uh, a lot, <laughs> and uh, that's a thing that could probably be coached. And so I wouldn't be shocked if with Arenado maybe he had really poor footwork and that, well, that was uh, improved upon by good coaching. Yeah, it's hard to say though, right? Which of the players who will take and who will take to that uh, that sort of coaching? Yeah, right? yeah. I think work ethic is uh, probably a, a large part of defensive performance or defensive ability, and it's you know very difficult to scout. Um, you know, I wrote about Hanley Ramirez today, and I think Hanley Ramirez probably could be an okay defensive left fielder. He was a, a major league shortstop for. Almost 10 years, like this shouldn't be that hard for him to transition to the outfield, but he does, doesn't seem to care. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to try. He's not, 
working very hard or diligently, according to reports, in order to take extra fly balls or uh, put in much effort in order to learn a new position, where with a guy like Arenado or Cano or um, some of these other guys, they probably worked themselves to the maximum level that they could achieve with their defensive abilities. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, like, I'm not so sure we can predict ahead of time. Yeah, that's difficult. That's difficult. And I know that uh, I was – when Kylie was talking about uh, going to some of these – you know, he goes to showcases, right, yeah. where, uh, you know, like you have a prep a prep showcase where it's just like 100 kids or something, right? Or, you know, you might see like 30 – 30, like 16 to 18 year olds taking reps at shortstop. And it's his job, and it's not just, of course, his job. Um, it's the job of, uh, scouts from all, you know, all the 30 different organizations to reach some sort of conclusion about each player's defensive ceiling or each player's, you know, likely defensive, uh, future just in these, in these small takes. And if you, I mean, you'd agree, right, that, Having some sort of opinion on the the defensive future of the player is better than having none at all. Yeah, but it's at the same time um, it's difficult, right? Because <clears throat> there might be some guys, and I don't know if necessarily Lindor is like this, but I think of another player like a Dani Echeverria, mm-hmm. a name I might be pronouncing correctly. I think you actually at least got close. Yeah, let's say I got close. He is a sort of player who appears to have all the tools. Um, in in uh, considerable uh, quantities, and yet uh, has not necessarily uh, has not necessarily posted excellent defensive numbers. So I think that might be a different case this year. Um, but attempting to attempting to reach conclusions about a player's defensive ability based off you know while you're trying to make to make uh, reach similar conclusions about 29 other guys at the same time, that that seems to pose a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that Echeverria is probably a decent example of kind of what we're talking about. Is this is a guy who uh, was signed essentially as a you know an elite glove, wouldn't hit, but could play defense well enough to to justify his spot in the roster. Um, and then you know when he came up through the Blue Jay system, was all you know was raved as a top line shortstop, and uh, the Marlins considered him to be the best defensive shortstop in baseball, even though they play in the same division as Anderson Simmons. And all along, the numbers have said this guy's actually not very good. And uh, I think there was a piece last year where one of the Marlins. Um, coaches talked about how he saw the numbers, he was aware of them, and he didn't understand how they could be that way, so he was going to look into whether they were positioning him incorrectly, and maybe they were um, putting him in positions where you know he was less likely to feel the ball, uh, even though he was an extraordinarily talented defender, maybe he wasn't going to make the play, which in the end is all we really care about. I mean, I think there's this is one of the disconnects when people talk about defense is for some people they just want to know the true talent level of a performer and they don't care about positioning at all and they want to like drill it down to just this guy and what he can do physically but at the end of the day all you really care about is he makes the play and it doesn't really matter if you got there with range or because you stood there to start with and out and out and like the, the physical uh versus the mental doesn't really add any extra value and so uh positioning does matter and if you're better at positioning you can make up for a lack of range um and i think you know in hechevaria's case the marlins may have figured out uh that they were positioning him poorly and perhaps that's why his defensive numbers were improved this year as they uh were informed by the fact that his defensive metrics did not live up to his reputation and have potentially made some changes in order to try and take advantage of his talents okay that's this is all a long uh, tangent uh, on the topic of Francisco Lindor. Let's move elsewhere uh, within the, the American League Central. Uh, the Minnesota Twins, same day, which is also yesterday, uh, recalled, promoted 
for the first time and uh, gave a debut to Byron Buxton, who, as you mentioned, um, has been celebrated in the past, but still celebrated this year, certainly, but um, he had missed uh, quite a bit of time last year, so there was uncertain uh, exactly what he would exhibit uh, entering the season. Uh, he uh, he played uh, well, though, at uh, AA and is now part of that team, a, 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 a Twins team, uh, which, as we've discussed, I think, well, I don't know if it's still the case right now. As of last week, however, they had the best record in the American League and also the the worst projected rest of season record, according to yeah, the projection. I don't think they have the best record anymore. Okay. Because so I do. remember like uh, maybe two weeks ago on the podcast, uh, I made some comment about how the Twins, uh, I think at that point they were 30 and 19, and I said the Twins were just a bad team that had won, happened to win 30 out of 49 games. And and uh, since then they are like 3 and 9 or something. Yeah. Right. Uh, they might still have uh, – it's still a possibility they have the worst uh, rest of season uh, projected record. In fact, I think that's true, but I don't think they have the best record anymore. Lo- looking over it, it does uh, – I can confirm that, that is the case. Uh, but but but, but uh, – so um, I, I always think back to a post you wrote years ago now. I think there's something like uh, bank, wins in the bank, teams yeah. have wins in the bank. The, the Twins do have wins in the bank. The they Twins do. have wins. Yeah, right. They are six games over 500, so – you know, if they don't have to play great baseball the rest of the way in order to finish in the wild card race, they basically have to hang around 500 the rest of the year in order to remain contenders. Uh, Buxton might help them get closer to 500, especially if, like Lindor, he's supposed to be a great defensive center fielder. Uh, I've seen a bunch of people uh, say that his floor is kind of Billy Hamilton, where, you know, he maybe he'll hit, maybe he won't. He doesn't have a ton of minor league development time, so it's possible he's going to get overmatched uh, in his, you know, at the plate in his major league debut. But the idea is that his defense will carry him to be valuable enough, <laughs> even if he's not hitting that well, and he's, you know, extremely fast, and, uh, you know, he can he can steal bases. So he's going to be a speed and defense guy who may or may not hit, uh, which, you know, I think there's some merit to that. Like, if you have a guy who's a really legitimately you know, as fast or as close to as fast as Billy Hamilton, and we should probably expect that he's probably going to be a pretty good defensive outfielder. Maybe he's not going to be, um, you know, an 80 outfielder, but he's probably going to be above average at least, and maybe he'll be really good. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether he, if he turns into Billy Hamilton for, you know, even an extended period of time, a year or two, if that begins to be seen as a disappointment considering that, you know, a couple of years ago he was being talked about as Mike Trout. Right. Yeah, well, I guess we will see. I mean, do, do, you, that, do you think that um, – it sounds like you think the move will help the Twins in the short term, though. Well, the Twins are not uh, a team with a lot of talent in the outfield, so I don't think that replacing, uh, you know, Jordan Schaefer or the likes of Aaron Hicks with uh-huh. Byron Buxton is going to uh, result in a downgrade, even if Buxton doesn't play bad the, uh, or but doesn't play well. I mean, you know, the Twins basically have a very low f- – Low ceiling, or yeah. low low bar to clear. That's too bad. Uh, I would say it's too bad about Aaron Hicks. I, I thought he was going to turn in. I mean, he's he's only he's 25, so that's not the end of his career. I, I thought he was going to turn into something. I really did. I think he's one of these guys who um, has a too high of a strikeout rate with not enough corresponding power. Right? Like this seems like the kind of guy who fails a decent amount where. Uh, if you have gap power, but you still strike out 25% of the time, that's not not a great combination. Right. Yeah. But he's yeah yeah his strikeout rates have varied. But you're right. You're right. I mean, he's kind of like 
Jackie Bradley Jr. with less defense. I mean, I think these are like this kind of player fails more often than people think. Right, thank you. Okay, uh, so that's that's the Twins. It'll be interesting. Uh, I guess what I mean at a certain point, all you could say is it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Twins because they they had wins. They've got wins already. Yeah, um, they're disappearing pretty quickly. I think the Twins will be out of the race by August. Okay, that's what Dave Cameron says. Yeah, I, I have not angered enough an AL Central fan bases yet. Trevor Bauer's bad. Francisco Lindor's overrated. The Twins are headed for decline. What can I say bad about the Royals and Tigers? You don't have to say anything bad about them. I know I don't have to. Yeah, you but don't I, I uh, it seems to be my thing. We're gonna do. We're gonna do. We're gonna look at the American League West briefly. Okay. Uh, uh, the Astros promoted uh, not one but two uh, players over the last. I don't know. We'll say. We'll say week. I'll say week. Uh, in Vince Velasquez and uh, Carlos Correa. Uh, they're in a different position than the teams we've mentioned, insofar as they are both uh, they both remain in first place and are also uh, projected to remain there for the duration. So they've really just strengthened their teams. I, I, well, Jed Lowry's been injured for a while for the Astros, and then the, I think the replacement was maybe Marwin Gonzalez, maybe or yeah, a Jonathan Br. Yeah, right. Some some combination of those guys. Uh, Correa started off pretty well, I think. Uh, he's hit a couple of dingers. Yeah. I don't know if he's done anything else besides hit a couple of dingers. But when you're shortstop and you hit some dingers, that's that's okay. Yeah, that'll get that'll get you going. Yeah. Uh, and they have a they have sort of a ridiculous uh, pitching staff at this point. Um, ridiculous in the sense that they only have one major league starter. Do the Astros? Yeah. Well, also because Lance McCullers, who well, right. So he's pitching ridiculously. Yes, yes he's pitching ridiculously. He's halved his walk rate upon um, upon moving to the majors, which is not. You don't Not think usual. Of that, you don't think of that as happening. Yeah. Is it is that a possible thing where where maybe there was uh, just a mechanical change that needed to happen and maybe he made it during that you know during one of those month uh, first whatever month and a half of the minor league season and they're like oh well you're a different guy I mean pitchers yeah. can become a different they can become different pretty quickly yeah it's certainly possible I'm much more inclined to buy a breakout uh, for a pitcher than I am for a hitter I think in general hitter breakouts are overestimated and don't occur as frequently as people think pitcher breakouts I think uh, you know it's not that unusual to see a guy tweak his delivery or add a new pitch or figure something out and just you know dramatically step forward overnight Jake Arrieta last year was probably the best example um, but you know even Carlos Carrasco we talked about earlier they're guys who just you know were nothing and then all of a sudden they're amazing and uh, I think there's a chance that McCullers really could have done something in the minors uh, and it does seem like the Astros uh, who have Dallas Keuchel and Scott Feldman and you know like a, a decent amount of pitchers who have done this before um, perhaps the Astros are hey, Colin McHugh as well yeah right Colin McHugh uh, the Astros might have some insight into some of the tweaks that a pitcher could make in order to take a huge leap forward who's responsible for that I mean, I know that, so for example, the White Sox are a pretty notable example in recent years, and is it Don Cooper, their pitching yeah. coach? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is it just a pitching coach? Is it, could it be an organizational thing? So the Astros made a pretty big deal out of hiring Brent Strom, uh, who came, I think, from St. Louis. Uh, he was in St. Louis when Jeff Lunau was there, and I think they think very highly of Strom, and he's kind of not just a pitching coach, but kind of like their pitching coordinator for the entire organization, and has um, some pretty strong philosophies that they preach all the way through. Um, and so I think Strom is probably the guy they would point to and say he gets the most credit. It's never going to be any one individual. Uh, but I would imagine that they would look at this as a kind of like a Brent Strom effect uh, of being able to take pitchers who 
you know, weren't supposed to be anything good or anything special at least and turn them into significantly better pitchers than expected. That's been, uh, I mean, that's one question that, that has been asked of the, um, of the Cardinals, right, over the last roughly five to ten years. Is their capacity to transform, you know, late round picks or late-ish round picks, relatively late round picks into uh, major league regulars, is that a, is that a function of of draft acumen or is it a function of just of development, right? Yeah, no one knows. I no think it's knows. probably both, but uh, no one really knows whether it's their great scouts or their great developers. I think the theory is that they're really good developers, but I don't think anybody's figured out the magic formula uh, or whether it's uh, recreatable in another organization. Right. Although I would say if you do have, if you do find a, a team full of, of pitchers, for example, who've made it, made adjustments, yeah. that, that might, that might denote a trend. It might, yeah. I mean, I think that there's certainly a possibility that the Astros are onto something here and have, you know, uh, figured out how to take kind of, you know, minimal raw materials and turn them into a pretty good finished product. Um, I, but I think at the same time, a lot of times we can pick up on trends that are kind of randomness that just uh, appear and, and we buy into them as, like I remember, you know, what was it, 10 years ago now, I guess, but with the A's when they, when Moneyball was, you know, published as a book and uh, a lot of the kind of narrative at the time was that the A's had figured out arm injuries, right? Like they were able to keep Barry Zito and Mark Mulder and Tim Hudson healthy for years and years and years and they never got injured and that was like one of the hallmarks of the A's organization is that they just didn't have pitcher injuries and then for like the last five years every pitcher the A's had has blown out their arms sometimes multiple times and it's very clear that the A's have not figured out pitcher injuries and then the Rays got that reputation for a little while of being able to develop and keep all their pitchers healthy and then all their pitchers blow out their arms and so um, I, I think that just by the sheer force of you know outliers you're going to have some teams look really good from a development perspective and they may have figured something out or they may have just gotten lucky we don't know uh, okay this will be uh, the, the uh, last player we consider before you've fulfilled your obligations to fangraphs audio uh the texas rangers are currently in second place in the al west yeah and their their fans will let me know about that every day on twitter until it's not true yeah <laughs> and uh um, even according to base runs, uh, I think that's, let's see, there are maybe two or three wins ahead of where we'd expect it to be. So not crazy. No, uh, but they're beating their projections by a good amount. By a good amount. Yeah. And, um, when Adrian Beltre went down, uh, they took that as an opportunity to, um, to recall Joey Gallo, who is yeah. a, who is a, an interesting player. He, I mean, he's sort of like a walking, um, it, like a walking exercise, right? Or, you know, like experiment. It's like, how much can you strike out if you have also the best, you know, the, roughly the best power in baseball? Yeah. Right. He's like, uh, if you combine Rob Deere and Adam Dunn and Russell Brannion into one player. Right. right. But all those guys were pretty similar guys too, weren't they? Yeah. But I mean, you're kind of taking like the extremes of it. So it's like Brannion's <laughs> strikeout rate with Dunn's power and, uh, I don't remember who the Rob Deere's walk rate, right? Like, I mean, you know, like these guys are, uh, all three outcome, three true outcome players. Right. Uh, Gallo strikes out, at least in the minor leagues, more than any of them, uh, or almost as much as Brannion anyway. And Brannion's career kind of wasn't ever as good as it was supposed to be because of his limited contact rate. The question is whether Gallo can make more contact than Brannion or have, 
you know, higher, uh, outcomes on contact, uh, in order to have a better career than Brandon. Right. So that's, so that's the question. He also has, uh, some defensive ability, probably. Yeah. He can play third base, sort of. I think yeah. eventually he'll move to the outfield, and that might even be... I mean, he's hitting well enough that there's almost no chance that he's going to go back to the minors when Beltre returns, uh, and, you know, they're not going to move Adrian Beltre off third base. So then the, if you have uh, weaknesses in the outfield and you need a spot for Joey Gallo to play, Joey Gallo to the outfield makes a lot of sense. Well, right, and to that point of having weaknesses in the outfield, they do have... Uh, they they haven't really solved left field um, any time recently. They've had... I think, well, they traded for Josh Hamilton, and then he got hurt like two days later. Right, and then they also and how how do we know how long Hamilton is out for? A month, and a then month. you know you're not really sure what to expect from him in a month when he comes back. Right, and uh, and Martin uh, Leonis Martin has not been playing as well previously, so I guess yeah. they have what the other option is to line up the shields out there. Yeah, um, right. Their their outfield is not very good. Right. So uh, so it would appear as though there would be a spot for Gallo somewhere, especially if he. If he keeps doing, I mean, his numbers have already settled in to what you might have expected in terms of just like his plate appearance, like his uh, plate discipline stats. He's got a 13% walk rate and a 35% strikeout rate. If he, if that was, if he had those same figures at the end of the year, you wouldn't be shocked, I assume. No, right. I mean, he's, uh, his kind of markers have all seemed to stabilize into kind of what you would expect based on his skill set. There's a guy who's going to hit the ball really hard and swing and miss a lot and draw some walks. Uh, and, you know, whether he can do the right combination of those three things remains to be seen, but so far so good. His his uh, his zips projection is... is uh, not, not great. Well, it's interesting. Um, he is projected to have a 42% strikeout rate. That's bad. And, and still produce a slightly above average batting line, park adjusted. Yeah, that's uh very hard to do. That's rare. You need to have something going on. You either need to you need to well, you need to have some sort of uh you need to either have a cra- crazy walk rate, I guess, or or a pretty excellent pa- uh power on contact. And he I has think, uh, I think the only player uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think going off memory Russell Brandon has the highest career strike out of any hitter in the majors with like, you know, 1000 or 1500 bats, some normal amount of at bats, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think Brandon was like 37%. That's like as high as we've ever seen. Now, strikeout rate's higher now than it has been in the past. So if you adjusted for era, maybe Brandon's like modern day strikeout rate would be 40 or 41 or something. And he had some seasons where he was up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right, if, if Gallo really ran a 41 or 42% strikeout rate, that would be unprecedented. And if Brandon, if Brandon could have played third base decently for his career, he would have been, he would have been a different kind of player ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think Brandon, uh, hit well enough to justify an everyday job if he would have had defensive value, but he was, he could kind of play third base, but he was mostly a first baseman and he couldn't really hit lefties. And, um, I think he probably, uh, ended up as, you know, more of a bench player than he needed to be. I think if someone would have just said, we're giving Ross Brandon 600 at-bats a year for three or four years in a row, they might have actually turned out with an above-average player. Uh, but his flaws were so obvious that no one really wanted to do that. It almost seemed like uh, by the end of his career, um, by the end of, uh, of his career, he... Uh, he people uh, Teams were almost willing to give him a chance, but then he was falling apart physically. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what else is falling apart, Dave Cameron? This podcast? This edition. This, this, yeah, I'm calling it the program now. I, I, like, I like to call it the program. It makes me feel more like I'm doing an important chat show. Okay. Chat but show. Wouldn't a program mean like there were more than one? I think a program has like, you know, 
this thing and then that thing and then this, this thing edition and of the it. program. This is a radio program. It's a it's a it's a podcasting it's a podcast program. I don't like the alliteration there. I've, this I'll, this I'll feels like an episode of a podcast rather than a this edition of a program. This this, this this it for the program. This it for the program. The program. The program. Program. I like Pro- to say program, program too. It sounds more a little bit. Yeah, just P R O G R M. No A at the end. Yeah, program. Program. Yeah. 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 How you doing, Dave Cameron? Uh, I am ready to stop recording. All right. Well, you know what? You, you, I'm about to go on a trip to Vermont. I've already warned you of that fact. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was wondering if you would help me do the introduction quickly so that I don't have to take my microphone with me. Okay. All right. You ready? Yep. Okay. I'm going to do it. And okay, you're going to help I'm, me with it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but okay. All right. You're there. Yeah, I'm here. All right. Here we go. One moment. Silence, please. To Ralph and the team on a brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest... On this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every every Monday, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Uh, one thing he does not do every Monday is to help me with uh, the introduction, but for reasons that the listener uh, will soon about, I said for reasons that the listener, about which the listener will soon learn, he's helping me right now. Dave Cameron, you're there. Soon is not a good term. We just recorded a 50-minute podcast. No, so it's ridiculous. You're lying. This will not be soon. You're lying. Listeners, buckle in. This is going to take a while. What do we discuss? We discuss uh, a lot of what we discuss here are uh, are prospects that have been promoted, uh, the whys and hows and wherefores. Yeah. Yeah, and I insulted a lot of players with a lot of hype. You really focused on the AL Central as well. I tore them all down. Well, we do talk about uh, evaluating defense and some of the d- difficulties, and maybe some of the the sort of um, the misconceptions about about evaluating defense. Yeah, or, or and the the challenges therein, especially at the minor league level. And then, uh, and I suppose also we look at uh, some contending teams and attempt to uh, to essay to to examine how contending they really are. Right. In That's, which case, I I burst bubbles of teams and players alike. Right. You are like a uh, you are like you are like a like a five year old near a soapy <laughs> bathtub, in that you you regard it as your job to burst bubbles. Yeah, I think this this podcast better be uh, titled Dave Cameron Bursts All Bubbles. No, oh, okay, we can do that, although I have vaguely central. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, I think you mean this edition of the program, yeah? Uh, sure, yeah, okay. that's what I meant. That's exactly what the you program. mean. Well, we will get to it, uh, we will get to it uh, post-haste. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron helping me with the program. I am Carson Sestouli, and what you're about to listen to is this edition of Fangraphs Audio. All right, what an intro. That was very long. Yeah, that's all right. People will get used to it. I know you don't usually listen to the program. It's it's uh, roughly how long it is usually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, Dave. You have uh, now you've really fulfilled your obligation. Yeah. We're still recording. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that has been Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has really been this has been Fangraphs Audio in the past. Bye. <laughs>